Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Thank you guys for joining us this morning as well. Uh, my name is Dwayne, one of the pastors here at The District. Um, just want to say good morning to you. I was out last week. Um, I was down in Alabama preaching at one of our new partner churches that's there, and that was a, a great time. Uh, they're going to be sending up a team of about 50 to 75 people um, the first week of July to, to just help us kind of have a tangible expression of the gospel here in this neighborhood by just serving in practical ways. And so we're really looking forward to, to that team coming up. And it was also encouraging to hear last week um, that we had just a, a phenomenal gathering here too. And so it was kind of uh, it was almost kind of both and for me. It was like, oh, that's really encouraging that they had such a refreshing and amazing service. And at the same time, I was like, it was without me. And so that's, <laughs> that's also good, good to hear at the same time. Uh, but today we're going to be diving into Acts chapter 12. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 12. If you don't have one, there's a hardback black one around you. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that's also our gift to you. And so you can feel free to take that home with you. Um, but Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be in this chapter. Uh, honestly, just to kind of sum it up, this chapter is about God and Herod. Um, this is Herod. Uh, he's Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who was king uh, when Jesus was born, and he ordered the infants killed in Bethlehem. Uh, he was brought up in Rome and made king in Judea and the surrounding territories by uh, Gaius the emperor. And so we are going to be looking at just the collision of Herod's will and agenda, and also God's will and agenda, and ultimately just kind of seek to make sense of this thing, um, of, of what's going on in, in this story, and why Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, and as he's seeing the gospel advancement and the gospel movement begin to spread, and as we're going to jump into next week in Acts chapter 13, we, we start to see how the church... Um, ultimately moves their, their center of operations from Jerusalem to Antioch and how Antioch now kind of becomes just this missional hub where they're just sending people out in order to continue to spread the gospel. And so we'll actually look at that next week, um, which really is kind of the springboard into the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so, so there's all this expansion of the gospel happening. There's all this movement of the gospel. There's this great awakening within just the, the, the areas that are there in Judea and Samaria and even now moving into the ends of the earth. Um, and we're seeing God do a lot of amazing things. And then Luke kind of just nestles in chapter 12 right in the middle of this that has to do with one of the first apostles being killed. We've had Stephen as a martyr. And now we're seeing one of the apostles, James, the brother of John, being murdered and then Peter being arrested. And so we're just kind of looking at this and saying, like, God, what are, what are you doing um, in the midst of, of this great expansion of, of the, king, uh, the kingdom? And one thing I want to do, too, I, I want to mention this to you guys. Um, when, when we go through this message and, and when we open up the word of God, there's going to be things that I say that are very similar of things that you've already heard me say. Um, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what I don't want, and I'll, I want to keep pressing this, is I don't want us to play church. Like, I don't want us to come in week in and week out and, and just hear a message, and that's great, that's awesome, that was yes and amen, we, we believe that truth, but then we leave and we move on, and 
and we don't think about it anymore. We, we, don't, we don't seek understanding in the truth that we just heard. We just assume it, or we just agree to it, but yet it really doesn't actually jump into our heart and our soul and, and begin to transform us. And so I want to bring that up because Proverbs 1.5 says this, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And so I don't want us to just be people who come in and hear. I want us to be wise people who come in to seek an increasing of understanding. It also goes on in Proverbs 1.5 to say, and the one who understands obtains guidance. And so not only are we coming in to hear and hope that we're seeking understanding, but once we seek understanding, we're then also looking for guidance to now do with that understanding that we've just learned. And so my, my prayer for us as a church is, is knowing that, that I'm a young 31-year-old um, figuring this thing out at the same time, my prayer is that you would open up your lives to, to not only hear what God has to say, but also to, to pray that 40 minutes from now, you have a greater understanding of what he's doing that then also allows you, when we leave from this place, to begin seeking out relationships that help you produce guidance on now what to do with what we understand. How do we actually apply it to our lives so that we are being transformed into the image of Christ, so that we are growing from one degree of glory to the next? And so that's my hope for us is that, that we're constantly on this growth, that we're constantly moving towards Christ rather than stagnant and just having yes and amens here and there on what he's doing and this and that, but that, that he's actually working within us. So, so that's my prayer, and, and I want to pray that before we jump into Acts chapter 12. God, we come to you this morning. We thank you. We thank you that we can gather and have this opportunity to... to come together as a people um, from, from different backgrounds, from different cultures, from different socioeconomic statuses. We're, we're, we're all over the map in here. But yet we can come in here and we can open up your word and we can let your spirit transform us to be of one accord, to be solely focused on you and only you, to be able to lay at your feet our anxieties that we have every single day, to be able to lay at your feet the stresses that we're dealing with on, uh, constantly, whether that's with family or jobs or relationships. We're able to come in and lay those things down because we know that we have a God who is governing those things. We have a God who is sovereign over those things. We have a God who is orchestrating and working out all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. And so, Father, we're praying that you do that in this place, that your Holy Spirit who comes in to guide us in understanding the truth and then who also is then guiding us to be able to understand what we then do with that. Father, would you orchestrate that and move that within our hearts and our minds and our souls this morning. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 12. And uh, we're going to be covering all of chapter 12 today, so buckle up. We're going to begin in verse 1. And I'm just going to read through, and as I read through, I'll pause at different times and, and teach on it. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers 
to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by or made to God by the church. So the first thing that jumps out to me when reading this part of the passage is the four squads. Like, why four squads? He's a fisherman. Like, why four squads of, shoulder, of soldiers? I mean, like, he's not Jason Bourne. Like, he, he doesn't have the skill set to be able to get out of, of all these intense situations. And in Peter's defense, like, he's considered an unlearned man by the Pharisees. Like, who is this? He's just an unlearned man. And so, like, why? And, and, and not only that, but we even know just from Scripture, like, he's not the sharpest of knives. Like, he's, he has a lot of faults. So he's not the guy who's behind the scenes trying to strategize and here's exactly how we're going to get out of this situation. No, he's probably going into the situation thinking, yep, this is it. <laughs> because of we just, how we know Peter responds most of the time. But if you're following us and, and as you've been kind of looking through a lot of acts, here's the reason for the four squads is you can't seem to keep these guys in prison. You just can't seem to keep them there. This isn't the first time Peter's been in prison this is the third time that he's been in prison the first time he was preaching at pentecost they arrested him they brought him in and then an earthquake happened and the holy spirit just walked him out and then the second time put him in prison again guarded a little bit stronger this time holy spirit just comes in again says yep we're just going to walk right out and just opens up a door for him and then this is the third time and you got here like okay third time's a charm four squads Double the soldiers, both sides, double the chains, lock this guy down. He's not going to get out this time. So now we have Peter in prison. And I always want to kind of step aside um, and, and just kind of lean into this situation a little bit more than what we're seeing here in Scripture. And so this is a little bit of conjecture. It's not found in the Word of God, but I don't think it's hard to deduce this from the Scriptures. Herod began to put a violent violent plan against the church. I mean, he's now not only arresting Christians, but he's killing Christians. One of the apostles is now dead, James, the brother of John. So now we're getting to like trying to cut the head off the snake of this movement that's happening because Herod is so frustrated with this. But not only is he frustrated with it, but he's seeing the crowd is being pleased by this. And so anybody who's in any type of leadership or even at that political leadership, whatever pleases the mob, oftentimes you're going to bend your will towards and you're going to go with whatever they want you to do. And so Herod is, is all about this. And so you have to believe that his plan for Peter is not to put him on a fair trial. It was not to protect him from the mob, so let's put you in prison. Rather, you would have to think that he just killed James... And that pleased everybody. So his next thing he says is, I'm going to hand you over to the people. Well, what's a mob do? We've already seen what a mob does with Stephen. A mob does not come together and be like, yeah, you know, give us, give us a quick message. And then we'll kind of decide what, what we're going to do with you. No, like the mob stones. The mob kills. That's what the mob does. And he's going to hand him over. So in the midst of the death of James and now the imprisonment of Peter with more than likely the intent to execute him as well, I've got a question I want us to think about. What is God doing 
in the midst of death, persecution, trials, and tribulations. Like, where's God in this picture? Advancements happening, gospel movements happening. He's already appointed and put these guys in place to lead his church. And now that his church is advancing in what God wants to happen, why are they now being killed and put in prison? What's God doing in this? Here are two things I want to pull out of this text that I think become important for us to walk in the vibrancy and just vitality that I believe God has for us in Jesus. And here's the first thing. Despite all the beauty in the world and all the life in the world and all the blessing that comes from being alive, the world will at times look chaotic. It's going to look chaotic. It's going to look out of control. There's going to be heartbreak. There's going to be loss. There's going to be suffering. And it feels like those circumstances that are happening do not jive well with a God that we would view to be good. This is going to be a collision course that we're going to face if you haven't already faced it in your life. God, you say you're good, but yet I'm dealing with death and persecution and heartache and loss and suffering. And that does not feel like what you say you are. So how do we reconcile those two things? And that's really the question that I want to answer in this. But what I want to first say is, although it looks chaotic to us, it never looks chaotic to God. It never looks chaotic to God. Like, he's never up in heaven looking down saying, oh no, what do I do next? I wasn't expecting that to happen. I didn't see that coming. Like, he's, like God never drives an ambulance. Like, there's no triage in heaven where he's trying to come back and put the pieces back together to figure it out. He doesn't operate that way. We need to put roots there because the world is broken and chaotic, but we serve a God who knows exactly what he's doing in the midst of the chaos, and to him, it doesn't look chaotic. He is, as Romans 8.28 says, working out all things for the good of those who are called, who love him, who are in the family of his. So how does... I mean, because that's perplexing to me when I think about that. Back in July, I attended the funeral of a two-year-old. Um, he's the son of one of my church-planting friends here in Indianapolis. Planted a church on the south side of town. Fourth of July, they're having a church-wide party, and his two-year-old son drowns. Like, in that moment, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And as I've been able to meet with Jason Hampton over the last several months, he just keeps talking to me about these stories. The stories he's telling me about Haddon was his name. Where just Haddon was just this joyful, happy, vibrant kid. They nicknamed him Happy Hattie. Haddon was the youngest of five children and, and was just adored by his older siblings. And so as I'm talking with him, trying to reconcile these things, these perplexities that are involved, like I'm thinking, Lord, you have this full of life, happy, vibrant two-year-old who has this, 
who has a lot of life ahead of him, who just brings joy to those around him. Like, can't you just take a grumpy one instead of this one? Like, that's the perplexities that I'm thinking. Like, it's a win-win. Like, just take a grumpy one. They get glory. There's nothing to complain about there. Why take a, a young two-year-old full of life with a lot of life ahead of him? But God looks at the situation, and to him it's not chaotic. He looks at the situation, and as he's writing the story, and as he's moving in the midst of the story, and as I was sharing with, with Jason at the funeral, I said the reason why Christians can have joy, not happiness, but joy on a day like that, was that we believe that God is sovereign over all things, including the day of death, and that he's good and beautiful in that governance, which means God is working thousands of things in the hearts of Jason that he does not see clearly right now, but that he will in glory. And when he looks back on that moment, Jason would not rewrite the story. So don't despise the dark days. Don't despise them. God's working out so many components and relationships and things that force us to be dependent upon him as he is sovereign. And to surrender our ideology of what we think is the good life. That as we surrender those things and we actually hand it over to him. And as he continues to develop us. What we ultimately receive and is produced out of us is a greater unshakable joy in those moments. Than what we would have ever received in comfort, ease, and popularity. It's just the truth. And so as we look at the situation with James and Peter being imprisoned, God did not, he's, he's not the author of evil when it comes to beheading James. But God is working and governing and sovereign over that entire situation to see his glory spread over the earth in order for people to come to know him in relationship so that they would receive the utmost joy that is theirs in Christ. Now, I wish I could go more in depth to explain why, because essentially is this not like one of the questions that's so often asked of our world is why do bad things happen to good people essentially? And, and I just, the only thing I can say is I don't know. Because I'm 31. And I'm not God. I have, based on society, like I, I have somewhat of an education. I read. I study. I listen to lectures, podcasts, whatever. Like I'm one of those weird guys who in one day could sit through like eight different sessions of 45 minutes to an hour long sermons and, I, and like drinking from a fire hose and I love it. But, but I'm 31. I'm, like, I'm small and sad compared to the Alpha and the Omega. 
Like there's a way in which he is viewing all things that's different than the way in which I'm viewing all things. And I even like to look at that via the lens of me and Ezra. Ezra, as a three-year-old, has a view of life in which he thinks it should operate. He, he has a, an opinion on what he should eat for breakfast in the morning. He has an opinion on when he thinks he should be able to go to sleep or not go to sleep. He has an opinion on when he thinks he should leave a birthday party last night. But he sees it through the lens of a three-year-old, where I'm seeing it through the lens of, hey, buddy, if you don't have sleep, it's going to go very bad for you. And if you, and if you only eat chocolate and fruit snacks for breakfast, that's going to go bad for you. Like, we've got to, like, you, 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 it, we've got to be able to get at this place where, where what's going on in our life, God knows better it's as simple as that. He knows better. And so we need to go to him and seek him out as we're seeing these complexities and perplexing moments in our lives. So despite all these beautiful advances of the gospel, miraculous things going on, there's also heartbreak that the church is experiencing. One of the apostles is now dead. God is still sovereign, reign of the universe. So let's look at how he saves Peter, because he does. He didn't save James, but he does save Peter. He's not playing favorites here. He's just acting and moving in the way that he sees is working out all things for the good of his people. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. One thing I love, and this is a small point in here, I love that as Peter is being saved by the angel here, by the Lord, he's just confused. I mean, he's just like, I'm not sure if this is happening, but I'm going for it. Like, let's just, let's just keep this thing going. Like, I, if this is a dream, I'm loving this dream. It's going to be bad when I wake up, but I'm loving the dream. So let's stay there. Don't pinch me. Like, like this is Peter. I'm confused in the moment. And I think, I think there's a lot of us who aren't willing to follow what the Lord's asking of us because we're just confused. We don't have all the answers yet. We don't have the clear picture yet. We don't have 
the X, Y, and Z listed out of how this is going to work out for me. Okay, God, I know you want me to, to take this position, or I know you want me to marry this person, or I know you want me to have you know, these X amount of kids, or I, whatever it looks like. Lord, I'm just not sure. I'm a little confused in this. I'm not sure if I should follow you here. I'm not sure if this person who you've placed in my path in relationship to be able to in, in, engage them with the gospel conversation. I'm still kind of confused on where they're at. Are they going to think less of me? Are they going to, you know, hurl insults at me? Or is this going to sever our relationship, our friendship? Like, I'm a little confused by it, Lord, so maybe I shouldn't until I know for sure. And so I just love the fact that Peter, in his confusion, thinking it's just another vision... Is just, I'm going to go along with the ride. And so I just think we need to take some more risks and just go along with the ride and see what happens. God's truly sovereign and protect. If we start going along with it and he doesn't want us to go along with it, then he'll move. I think we just need to not wait for it to be crystal clear. Because what is crystal clear is for him just to tell us to trust him. Just to trust him in the moment. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were, playing, were praying. They might have been playing too, but they were definitely praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over... There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he, ex he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So what we've seen today is God is sovereign over the death of Christians and the persecution of the church. James is killed with a sword. Saul has his life threatened and has to escape down the city wall in a basket, as we saw a few chapters later. Peter just 
getting arrested. These are real men, many of them with real families. That's also not conjecture. We know Peter has a mother-in-law and a mother and a family. I mean, these are people that God is using who are in difficult situations, life-threatening situations, and we're seeing that God is sovereign over all of their safety. But not only just their safety, but their mission. Even if that mission actually ends up them being put to death. That we ultimately know is the case of Peter, who will be crucified upside down one day. I mean, not a very popular sermon, right? Like, follow Jesus. You might get persecuted and put to death. But what we're seeing played out in this is that God is active and that he's moving and that he's providing them exactly what they need in those moments. That he's giving them the hope that they're holding on to when they're not able to hold on to their own strength. They're not able to hold on to their own intellect. They're not able to hold on to the government coming to help them. And so what, what I see in this kind of battle between God has, having a mission and, and installing apostles and deacons to spread the, the gospel and seeing the church multiply, and then you have Herod coming in and, and with his own authority and with his own letters and with his own government trying to thwart that and trying to kill that and trying to destroy what God is ultimately doing. We see this clash come into it. And what we can see is that the mission of God to declare the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped, regardless of foe. Like the reason why Luke puts Herod into this story to give this description is ultimately to say that if you oppose Jesus, you lose. And if you stand with Jesus, you win. And like, let's just talk about some of the governments here. Like, can we just agree that Rome's pretty legit? Like, has anyone been to Rome in here? Okay. I haven't either, so. Um, but in Rome, you have Rome that ruled for 1,500 years. 1,500 years. Roman Empire. I mean, like, that makes our little 220-year kind of... Um, um, experiments of America look very sad in comparison. Like it makes it look like a little craft project that the three-year-olds are doing right now compared to the Roman Empire. They span it from, from India all the way to England. It spread of 1,500 years. They comprise of a fourth of the known population of the world. I mean, like they're pretty legit. Like they still have roads 2,000 years ago that were built that they still drive on today. And we can't figure out the pothole situation in the wintertime. Like, we changed six tires last year because of just cars hitting pot. Like, I, I swear, like, there's going to be someone who just drives their car into a pothole and just we never see them again. We can't figure it out. Like, literally, every 10 years we're having to repave the roads that we have already paved. But, like, Rome has this thing figured out. And so you have the Roman Empire against this small little thing that they're calling the way. 
I mean, you would believe, like, if anybody in all of history had the power to be able to snuff something out, this thing would have ended within a few months. Go to the leaders, cut it off at the head, persecute them all, put them on display. I mean, they were burning and torturing Christians by the thousands, and they were putting them, it would be like us taking um, Christians down to the circle center of Indianapolis and just putting them on stakes all the way around it and just burning them and say, anyone else want to join this? Because this is legal for us to do this. It wasn't until 350 that Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire. And that was only because as it continued to expand that there were now over 350 million Christians within the Roman Empire comprising of 51.3%. As I said a couple of weeks ago, like if, if you're an emperor and now the majority of your Roman Empire is Christian, again, they don't do four-year terms to vote on who's going to become the next guy, you either get stabbed in the back by your friend or you die in old age to get replaced. So if the majority is now Christian, then Constantine in 351 is going to now legalize Christianity in the Roman Empire. I pray it was because he became a Christian, but history doesn't say that. But here's the thing. I think you and I are in far greater spiritual danger than any of our brothers and sisters who are in difficult places overseas. I just really do. Like, when you look at Scripture, the gospel thrives in persecution, in death, in trials, in tribulation. It thrives. The greatest expansion. If you actually look at the Roman Empire and you look at the expansion of Christianity after it became legalized, it started to die off. It started to slow down because now it was no longer a threat of someone coming and dragging us out and persecuting us. No longer do we have to really depend on God to be able to come in and walk us out of prison. Now we can just have this, this Christianity with comfort, ease, and whatever thermostat temperature we want set in the room or whatever kind of lighting we want in the room. I mean, like, let's be honest, guys. Like, those are the things we talk about. Yeah, we'll adjust the thermostat. We've got plans to do something different with the lighting. But, like, at the end of the day, like, like those things don't matter in the grand scheme of what God is doing in the advancement of the gospel. They don't. We feel persecuted because we drag kids up and down stairs. And I'm, I can say that because I've got a one-year-old as well. So dragging him up and down stairs, it's not pleasurable. But this is what we think about in Western society. This is what we think about. We, it's, it's, it's honestly hard to put ourselves in a story like this because we're, we don't receive this type of persecution. Because we're not coming into this place on a Sunday morning desperate for God to provide us encouragement and care to be able to go into tomorrow knowing that I might die because of what I believe. We're not coming into that into this place with that mindset. We're coming into this place honestly and if we could just be real for a moment praying for God to just continue to provide more comfort and ease 
and popularity and status. Those are the things we pray about. And I'm not saying that God does not care about those details of our life. I am not saying that at all. I believe he does. And I believe he is making provision over our lives. But what I'm ultimately saying is as we look at this, no detail is too large or too small for God to be sovereign over. I mean, yeah, like we are in a westernized culture and we should not apologize for being in a western culture. We should not apologize for being in a nation where Christianity is legal. And so we have the freedom to be able to come into a place like this and worship God. We should not apologize for that. And you should not also feel like you need to then go over to to the Middle East in order to be an elite Christian to serve God amidst persecution where you might actually be beheaded because of your faith. I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is, and what I am praying for is that we would just maybe change in our perspective that we have towards what we're actually dealing with on a weekly basis. That if God can be sovereign over walking Peter out of a prison in order for him to continue the mission of God, we also have to see the fact that God is sovereign over James being beheaded and not continuing the mission of God because he was called home. And yet there's hope in both. Because if you were to pull James and Peter back into a conversation, a meeting real quick, and say, hey guys, who got the better end of that deal? James is saying, I went to glory. I'm sitting with Jesus on a throne. I'm ruling and reign. Like, I'm, I'm receiving my inheritance as a believer in Christ, co-heir with him. And he's saying, Peter, you got the short end of, you got the short straw, man. You had to go back out and continue to be persecuted and continue to be ridiculed and continue to, to do this, this difficult ministry and have a body that's wasting away. Like James is saying, look at my glorified body that I got, man. God is sovereign over every detail. And it's specifically in the details that we view a certain way that's probably contrary to the way God views it. And so we need to relinquish our small, sad worldview of whatever it is and start asking God questions. God, what are you doing here? What should I believe about you in this situation? What should I do amidst this difficult thing that I'm walking through in a relationship that I have with a coworker or with a family member? Like, God, you, you see all things. You see their heart. You see their mind. You see their behind-the-door circumstances. Like, how do I interact with them? You know them. You know me. Work it out, please, Lord. So let's just trust that God is sovereign over this. His mission can't be thwarted. Which also means his growth in you, sanctification, what God began at justification and what he's working out now and what he will ultimately finish when Jesus returns and he glorifies us. What he is doing in your life right now, he is not behind. He's not late. He's not taking a day off. 
So what that means is what's going on in your life around you, God's piecing everything together for you to grow and become more like Jesus so that in this side of heaven, you're receiving the greatest joy that is to be had here and now. Life and life abundant, as John 10, 10 says. And so, really, the call from this message is just to look at the story and say, God's in control. And it doesn't matter what any type of earthly kings or earthly people or whatever we think is the best way, or in this case, Herod. God's will and his agenda cannot be thwarted. And for me personally, like that drives me because I know I'm trusting and following a God who does not mess things up, nor can he have anybody mess up what he's doing. And so I love that. I love that God has that sovereignty and I love that he has that control. And so we trust that. We respond by worshiping him for what he's doing in the midst of what we're doing in our lives. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that we're able to open it up and read your truth. We're able to read history of where you have stepped in and acted in a situation that seemed very dark and difficult for the first church. And because we, because of how we saw you act, Lord, that's able to provide us greater faith and trust, knowing that even as our church continue to face different difficult situations, whether that's individually or whether that's corporately as a body, we know, Lord, that you're working out all things for the good of us. So we trust you. We worship you for that. And we come and we lay down any anxieties we have. We lay down any stress we have. We just bring it to you and we ask that you would give us hope and that you would give us comfort in, in the midst of whatever difficulties we're, we're facing. And we ultimately know that you will because of what we've seen happen at the cross. But you were willing to pay in order to purchase us to be family. God, you do not lie. You're faithful. As we've sung earlier, you are faithful. And as we're about to sing again, great is your faithfulness. And so we love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close out, we close out each of our services with communion. And, and as I kind of just mentioned in the prayer, this is, this is the, the epitome of what God is doing in the world when he's dealing with brokenness and sin and shame and guilt and fear and all the things that come along with sin. Chaos, anarchy, whatever it is. Jesus went to the cross in order to pay the death penalty 
for all of those things in order for God to then be able to grant to us life, resurrection, vibrancy, life abundant. And so we remember him for that. We thank him for what he's accomplished for us at the cross. And we worship Jesus by breaking bread and dipping it in the juice, representing both his body being broken and his blood being shed. So we worship him. And as they sing this song, man, let's just thank him for his faithfulness. His faithfulness. God will never let you down. And he will never be late in any of the circumstances or situations that you're dealing with. He's working it out. Trust him. Trust him. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at